Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Hello, I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and thank you for joining me for this month's episode of The Operative Word, the podcast of the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Nestor de la Cruz Munoz, and we will be taking an in-depth look into his current article, Long-Term Outcomes After Adolescent Bariatric Surgery. Dr. de la Cruz Munoz is a professor of surgery and the section chief of bariatric surgery at the University of Miami. Dr. De La Cruz Munoz, welcome to the Operative Word. Thank you very much for the invitation. I enjoy the opportunity to talk about our paper here. Wonderful. Just to get the first thing out of the way before we begin, do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose? No, no conflicts of interest related to this. Perfect. Well, Nestor, first I want to start by congratulating you, obviously on publication, but also asking if you could please give us a brief summary of your paper, your methods, as well as your main findings. Okay. Well, we, you know, we were concerned that there haven't been any real long-term outcome data on adolescent bariatric surgeries, uh, more than, especially more than 10 years in the literature. And I knew that I had, just by running my old reports, over 300 patients that were 21 years or younger. Uh, that I've operated on over the last 20 years doing bariatric surgery. And when we started looking at patients that had been done over 10 years ago, it was about 130 patients that were that were done at that point or later. Um, some as far back as 18 and a half years ago, now 20 years ago. Um, so we wanted to pull the data and find out what was going on with these people. And unfortunately, we were disappointed to find out that the great majority of them had very poor follow-up stats. And, and so we didn't know what the long-term outcome could be just because they were not returning to, to clinic to let us know. Um, so we comprised a study, uh, which we called the lost to follow-up study. And it was to try to track these, uh, these adolescents and young adults down to, to find out what really happened. And, and we were able to get the IRB to approve really us getting pretty invasive in terms of find, finding them and tracking them down across the country. Um, and what, so we started with 130 patients of those, we were able to track down 96 of them, uh, and get data and actually speak to all of those, uh, and get data on those patients. Um, the great majority of those were gastric bypass patients, as would be expected. This was surgeries done in the year 2002 to 2012. And, um, and, uh, there was one, I think one or two sleeves and a, and a couple of, a few bands in there as well. Um, and anyway, we, we started tracking them down slowly. We had a, a group of uh, clinicians from my office that would, that would work on tracking them down and then get data points from them on how their weight has transgressed over the, over the last 10 to 15 years, as well as their other health issues and what meds they were on. And of course, the complications that they had, that they had uh, gone through over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And so what we found was uh, actually kind of, kind of surprising. Um, we expected much higher failure rates and, and much less uh, outcome, but uh, we found that at uh, with if I if I stay with the bypass patients because that was the the most common uh, procedure that uh, we had a um, 
a long-term follow-up at a 31.3% total body weight loss outcome. And that was at an, about an average of almost 14 and a half years. Wow. Um, I mean, as a trauma surgeon, you know, any sort of follow-up that we can get at six months, we get excited about. So the fact that you've got follow-up at 14 years is just, it's amazing. It was, it, uh, yeah. But if we only went through clinic follow-up, most of the time we would get six months or less. Right. Um, even though we beg all these patients to come back and, and it's part of the policy that no patient leaves clinic without their next follow-up visit already made. Um, but you know, as you know, patients just feel better. They're doing well and get busy and don't come back. But so, so they, they got significant weight loss. Our, our percent, uh, responder rate, meaning at least a TBL, uh, I think it was greater than 20%. It was like 76% or something like that. It was very high. Um, and, um, and then the resolution of comorbidities. Now, this was all done via survey and, and you know, and, it, and patient, patient response. Um, so it's not perfect, but it gives us that there is a significant decrease in, in the comorbid conditions. Um, the only one that went up, which unsurprisingly was anemia, and that's something we can talk about, but that's very common in, in post-gastric bypass patients. Um, but, you know, things like diabetes and hypertension and, and sleep apnea all went down significantly in these kids. And one of our authors, one of our co-authors is a, is a cardiac, a, a pediatric cardiologist who says that he'd love to find a way to really um, analyze the risk, the cardiac risk uh, scales that we decrease in these kids by decreasing these, these medical issues for so many years. Um, you know, and uh, he, he gets excited about, about the cardiac risk improvements that we have in them that should, should pay dividends for, for decades. I mean, it really is remarkable just to recap some of the specific findings, but patients that reported hyperlipidemia, asthma, and diabetes reported 100% remission at follow-up. And again, we're not talking about six, eight months, but really durable results with your mean follow-up of 14.2 years. And then you also had a significant decrease in hypertension, sleep apnea, GERD, anxiety, and interestingly, depression as well, significantly from almost one third of patients pre-surgery to 4% afterwards. Again, at this durable finding greater than a decade out, it was really incredible. It, I mean, it goes to show that obesity really does affect them in many ways. And psychologically, it, it is always haunting them. Uh, and getting rid of this and helping them live more normal lives really made a difference. One of the supplemental tables, um, the supplemental table two was talking about uh, different things since, you know, and their, their education status. Um, right. 49% had done, co- were college graduates, I'm sorry, no, 50, 59% were college right. grads or postgrads, um, yes. which is incredible. Um, you know, uh, currently 85% or 84% are employed, you know, m- over half are currently married, another, another 38% are in a, in a pregnancy, I mean, are in a committed relationship. Um, so they, they are, uh, they are living good lives and they're happy. They told me they were happy. And I loved how you really highlighted the fact that this isn't just diabetes and hypertension and okay. You know, sleep apnea, you talked about depression, anxiety. And what I also wanted to highlight was you commented or you found that 67% of females went on to have a successful pregnancy and birth and fertility, especially for these young women as they are entering adulthood. And you're talking about changing a population that has difficulty, not only getting pregnant, but maintaining 
a successful pregnancy and delivering without complications, you know, you're taking this really high risk group and you're improving their life in so many ways. Yes. Yeah. And that's it, fulfilling. And it's such an important topic because not only does it impact our children in so many different ways, but it impacts so many of our children. In fact, nearly 4 million children in this country are diagnosed with super obesity to be exact. And it's interesting because it appears that to have better outcomes or even greater improvements in these comorbidities, if you undergo bariatric surgery in adolescence, as opposed to adulthood. Now we know that there are a number of barriers to these adolescents receiving what can be potentially life-changing and even life-saving surgery. But interestingly, as your paper highlights, one of the major barriers seems to be ourselves as a medical community. In fact, you cited some 2007 data that 48% of physicians would not ever refer an adolescent for bariatric surgery. So where are we in 2022 on this? Do you feel that this attitude has changed? And what do you think the medical community needs to do to not only get out of our own way, but to really get out of our patient's way to improve the referral rate to bariatric surgery for adolescents? Well, I think, I think bariatric surgery for adolescents is going through now what bariatric surgery for adults went in the early 2000s where I would have fights with primary care physicians because they wanted to kick patients out of their practice if they had bariatric surgery. Um, they were so against the, the process. Um, and um, now what we're doing is the same thing that we did with the adults. The problem is the physicians do not read the data. Pediatricians do not read surgical literature. And so uh, you know, if it's not in a pediatric journal, they're not gonna pay attention to it. So they don't know what the data shows. And even though the, the American Association of Pediatrics came out with a strong policy statement recommending more access to adolescent bariatric surgery, their own people are just not doing it. And so what, what the surgeons are having to do on a local level is try to, you know, I've been giving talks at local children's hospitals and to departments of pediatrics to try to raise awareness and let them see the data so that they get a better idea. This publication is going to, I think, give huge uh, push towards it because everybody wants long-term data, especially in young kids. They want to know what's going to happen in the long, long time. So, uh, you know, we, we need to keep working on it. And there's still a lot of people that, that are very much against this. And this, this watchful waiting, which the AAP coined, they said is actually one of the biggest uh, hindrances to access to care to bariatric surgery. And, and it's a big problem because surgery has been shown in multiple different studies, both in adolescents and, and adults, sorry, to, to work better the earlier on that you do it. The earlier on in the disease process that you attack the diabetes, the high blood pressure, the cholesterol, the cardiac disease, the metabolic syndrome, the earlier you, you reverse that, the better the outcomes are, the higher chances of all those medical problems going away. The longer you wait, the less chances you have of those things going away. And I thought it was interesting too, you bring up this watchful waiting, right? Which is trying medical and behavioral interventions on patients. And the data that I found was interesting was that those patients who go through watchful waiting have a higher BMI yes. over the course of time versus patients that you enroll in a pre-surgery evaluation. In other words, patients are getting worse with that. Yeah, not they, only they're not getting better, but they're getting worse. 
Yeah, because because they're in a program that's not working, they give up, they start getting frustrated, um, and and they become start feeling like failures. Um, it's it's funny because part of our group is you know pediatricians in our author group or, or pediatric base, and a lot of them started their early obesity work in um, population based obesity uh, management programs, and and now are focusing more on bariatric surgery and publishing more in bariatric surgery than than on these other programs because they realize that in the long term they haven't been able to show significant success, um, and and so it's a waste of time. And the majority of people continue with obesity and the majority of obese adolescents become out of the obese adults at about 75 to 85% range. I think another piece of data I want to highlight in regards to this is the fact that, you know, as a parent, this long-term data, and I think especially also as a pediatrician, as a physician, this long-term data is so helpful and beneficial because you want to know that what you're recommending to these young people is safe. And you found in your review that 91.7% of your participants would absolutely undergo bariatric surgery again. Now, although the number that said they weren't, that they would not go through it again, it was less than 10%. Did you have, or did you figure out the reasons why they said they wouldn't go through it again? And is that something that we can address preemptively or proactively? A few of them told me that they felt that they were too immature and not ready for surgery when they had when they had surgery, and that their parents pressured them a little bit too much. Um, and I think that that comes from our referral patterns for surgery, where uh, most of most of uh, the patients that came to us for surgery, their parents had had bariatric surgery in the past, so they knew the ravages of obesity and didn't want their kids to undergo it. So I think they were rather pressuring the kids sometimes. And so one of the things that I've learned now after this study is I take all the kids aside and talk to them independently, just really pushing them to, to really get their, their ascent uh, into surgery, not just, not just the, the, you know, an influenced uh, consent from their parents. Um, and so that was, that was part of it. The other part was that these surgeries, of course, don't work for every single person. And so you know, there were a handful of, of patients who didn't have great long-term results um, and um, haven't done as well, and they and they regret having done it because they figured they they went through the surgery and, and didn't get good results. Gotcha. Uh, it's really important to know. I think especially as we're talking about this idea of consent and the interaction between the parents and the child, and I, I love that advice of really trying to get one on one with the adolescent themselves to get a sense of what their desires and their goals are with the surgery. Yeah, I, I try to talk to them. It's funny because. You know, you get a you get a young kid who's 13, 12, sometimes or 15, and you know, your doctor talking to them and they're completely petrified. And the parents right. trying to speak up, and I'm telling the parent, just please be quiet. I need to talk to them for a little while. And right. because I'm trying to assess their maturity level and where they're at, um, because I can understand their desire to lose weight, but are they really ready to undergo the big change? Um, and I always tell them that that I'm gonna treat them a lot like an adult because this is the first big adult decision they're ever making in their life. Uh, more, bigger than buying a house. I say, you could always sell your house if you don't like it. But once you get a gastric bypass, you have that forever. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And of course we know that no surgery is without complications, but interestingly, one of the potential complications you discussed in this paper wasn't technical in origin actually, but is in regards to the patient's relationship with alcohol almost 10% of your patients reported having a drinking problem at some point postoperatively. 
And your team has actually previously published on this and has identified some possible themes, such as utilizing alcohol as a coping mechanism or self-soothing mechanism in the place of food. What education surrounding alcohol use is currently included in preoperative counseling? What should be included? And what do you think should be in place for these patients postoperatively, especially as at this age in adolescence, that's when a lot of them are just becoming introduced to alcohol and forming that relationship. Right. This how is can, huge, how this can we do this better? Well, I, I, you know, even though the 10% number sounds bad, if you look at the data for adolescents in that age range, it isn't really outside the norm of patients having problems with alcohol during that age range and binge, and binge drinking and everything. So it is relatively normal, but there is a lot of data showing that patients who have gastric bypass have higher rates of alcoholism than patients that don't have gastric bypass or even gastric sleeves. Um, and I try to give education to all the patients beforehand, as well as parents, telling them that I, I equate it to the difference because of the, the way the alcohol is absorbed much more quickly into the bloodstream of cocaine versus crack and the, the addiction level that between the two um, because of the way that the, you know, the, the, the cocaine is absorbed versus the crack being absorbed um, in, in different ways that gives a different sensation so that they have to understand it. They have to know that the data is there. Um, and, and while when we meet with them, anytime we, they, we get them in follow-up, we always ask them about it. But I think that something that could be helpful would be if different colleges that do have now, you know, kids, a lot of kids that have undergone bariatric surgery have, have social, uh, you know, planners and, and, um, and psychological teams that can help those patients when they go away, because that's when most of them first start experimenting with, with these uh, drugs, uh, when they're on their own for the first time. And, and all I can do is just have as frank a discussion with them. You know, I, I try to have a very frank discussion with them about that and about pregnancy in the very first meeting and every time I meet with them um, so that they understand that this, you know, that this is a big deal and it can affect them for life uh, and put them in troubles if, if they're not careful. You know, and luckily, most of those kids now uh, are in their mid-30s, and uh, most are not drinking much at all. So they have gone through a time in their 20s where they drank a lot, and then they right. kind of burned through it and matured out. And now they're doing, and the, at the same thing, they weren't taking their vitamins. Two-thirds develop significant anemia in their 20s. Most of them have kind of stable, stabilized that out. They're taking their vitamins again and, and have good, good numbers that way, too. And what's interesting, though, is that even with this period of non-compliance, let's say, right? You, I love that the study really looked at, again, really long-term outcomes. That even with this period of almost adolescence rebellion, you know, where they have the surgery and then maybe even a few years later, they stop taking their vitamins, they go to college, their life circumstances change. You're still showing these great outcomes. You're still showing that you're impacting these patients' lives in a really significant way. Well, the the big fear always is, oh, you're just making people thinner but but sick all the time. And when we looked at it, only 19 of them ever got readmitted to the hospital. And of those, seven were problems, internal hernias and intussusception were problems that it was because they were very early surgeries. And now we're not seeing those issues that much anymore. Um, because of changes in technique and gastric bypass. And the rest were, were you know, rel relatively infrequent and small things. So it's showing these people are getting out and about and doing their normal lives. They're not living lives at doctor's offices and hospitals and surgeries and, um, and you know, being miserable. 
um, but it's actually working for them. I was, I was really excited. Well, it's great because it's truly health is part of your quality of life. Yeah. If you are in the hospital all the time, if you have these comorbidities, you're taking multiple pills for your hyperlipidemia, your hypertension, you have an obstructive sleep apnea diagnosis and requiring a mask, you know, you're really impacting these lives in so many ways that add up to what we all care about the most, which is our patient's quality of life. Yeah. Oh, and, and one of the things that we don't even think about often, Jamie, you may see it in some of your trauma patients occasionally, uh, a young kid in his 20s with a fibrotic liver. Yes. From, from bad NASH going, you Absolutely. know, where you're completely in shock that you're seeing cirrhosis in somebody in their early 20s from fat. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I wish I could say I hadn't seen it. Yeah. No, I'm not. Absolutely. I'm, <laughs> you know, you have. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a really sobering experience, actually, when you start to get these young patients who are having such advanced disease at such a young age. Yeah. And I really just want to thank you again for this paper. It is such an important addition to the literature and I think is helping change the conversation. And hopefully, again, downstream effects are going to be more education to our pediatric colleagues, getting better referrals and more of a cultural acceptance that this is medical care. I hope so. I hope so. Because we looked at data and it showed that the kids that get surgery, so much more of them have BMIs above 50 than the adults, that there's such a delay for referrals that this has to change. And so we can get them earlier, earlier access. Well, thank you so much, Dr. De La Cruz Munoz, for taking the time to discuss your recent article. And thank you to our listeners as well. If you have any feedback for us here at The Operative Word, please drop us a line at postmaster at facs.org. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACS Operative Word. Subscribe to the Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at facs.org slash podcast.